Hi, you're tuning in to Rusty Thomas, where once a week he brings the brilliance of Scripture to every dynamic of life. For the last 40 years, Rusty has served the Lord as a father, minister, and political figure on the streets, churches, and capitals in our nation and abroad. You are going to hear compelling truths that will prayerfully build up your faith and equip you to meet the challenges of life with the confidence of God's Word. This is Kingdom Moments with my father, Rusty Thomas. Well, welcome, brothers and sisters. This is uh, Kingdom Moments with Rusty Thomas. Uh, So glad you are here with us today. Um, It's kind of an exciting day for our ministry. Um, We are about to launch a new website, and a study course based upon our book, Biblical Strategies to Abolish Abortion. So before I give you the details on the website and study course, I wanted to start with this passage of scripture. It is found in Habakkuk, verse, excuse me, chapter two, verses two and three. God's word says this, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak. It will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it because it will surely come. It will not tarry. As I've mentioned previously before, when I was a young man, Uh, The scriptures that God used to convict and direct me were mostly related to the battle for the souls of men, the lives of children, and the future of our beleaguered nation. Well, now that I'm in my latter years, the scriptures that God is convicting me about before I shuffle off this mortal coil are my duties and responsibilities as a father and a grandfather to lay up not just a godly heritage, but a livelihood for my rather large family after my departure. The other kingdom assignment that I know for sure is to take all that I've learned through the years, all that God has deposited in my soul, and make sure it is used to invest in the generation coming up and generations yet to come. It is to fulfill the continuum articulated by King David in Psalms 71, 17, 18. God's word says, O God, you have taught me from my youth. And to this day, I declare your wondrous works. Now also when I am old and gray-headed, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to everyone who is to come. The goal to fulfill that kingdom assignment will prayerfully be through our continual traveling ministry, both in our nation and abroad, books, the writing of books, uh, investing in this podcast, Kingdom Moments with Rusty Thomas, and training leaders a time like this demands with our Kingdom Leadership Online School. 
There's also a possibility we might be entering the realms of feature films, one that includes our son's testimony, Jeremiah Strong. And by the way, that book should be published in a couple of months, and I'll keep you updated on that kingdom project as it approaches its public release. Plus, uh, keep this in prayer, my son Mike and I are working together on another screenplay. The working title is Sheep in Wolves Clothing, and it may be changed to number one. We just got to see. So anyway, I just want to give you a quick update uh, on these kingdom assignments. Um, the podcast, um, it seems to be taking off everywhere I travel. Folks are telling me they are listening and they've been edified by the podcast. And, and certainly that is encouraging. Prayerfully, we will continue to use this outlet to disciple, mentor, and educate those who listen by preaching and teaching God's Word. We also want to provide commentary on the burning issues of the day from a biblical worldview or perspective. One of the other things we want to do through the podcast is interview movers and shakers that are doing a great kingdom work, the ones that are spreading the gospel of the kingdom and fulfilling the great commission in the earth. And uh, with each interview of that specific person, we also want to kind of provide resources uh, to help equip the saints to do the work of the ministry and to fight the battle for the souls of men, the lives of children, and the future of our poor fallen world. Uh, also, we've been working diligently to get our online school, Kingdom Leadership Institute, up and running. And I'm pleased to announce that we have raised the entire amount of money to complete the next phase of the website. And I just want to thank all who gave uh, to make this possible. Well, now the hard work begins. We have to put together the nuts and bolts of the school to get it up and running and fully operational. Our web designer, his name is David Fritch. He's currently working with our professors, Pastor Darren Stid. He's the overseer of the ministerial aspects of the school. His duty is to train future pastors and elders who, again, who will not only equip the church to do the work of the ministry, but to fight the Lord's battles that most pastors and elders have ignored for far too long in our beleaguered nation. The web designer will also be working with Jason Storms, National Director of Operation Save America, and the Benham Brothers to put together the study course for students who want to be trained in the realms of business, finance, and entrepreneurism. The goal there is to train up future businessmen that will become paymasters in the body of Christ. The goal of their wealth is to fund the kingdom of God. And lastly, uh, Brother David will be working with Brother John Jacobs to fashion the field of study that will train young men to become godly statesmen that will impact the political realm as in salt and light. 
So, brothers and sisters, uh, please be praying for all these kingdom projects, and especially for the school. We need now to upload all the books, reading assignments, writing assignments, curriculum, lectures, workout assignments. That's right. We're going to be training men physically. Um, They must be strong of limb, keen of wit, and fervent in spirit. And then, of course, there's going to be on-the-job training assignments. The biblical model to learn on our school, in our school is learn, do, and teach. So, brothers and sisters, please uh, keep that in your prayers. And uh, hopefully, within the next few months, we'll begin to launch that online school and begin to recruit students and candidates to be trained. So praise be to God. Well, today I'm excited to declare to you, to announce to you, we got a new website in study course. And this is our newest kingdom project. Um, The website and study course, it is based on our book, Biblical Strategies to Abolish Abortion. Now, there's a dear brother by the name of Rustin Schroeder, and he's from Wisconsin. He actually goes to Mercy Seat Church, which is pastored by my covenant partner and good friend, Matt Truella. Well, anyway, he approached me a while back and shared with me the value that he had seen in the book and his desire to see it spread abroad and have greater impact. Well... He went to work, he rolled up his sleeves, he put together an incredible website and study course program that seeks to accomplish uh, this kingdom goal of equipping the church to no longer regulate baby murder, but actually abolish it in Jesus' name. Now, here is the website, you might want to write it down. The website address is abortionstrategies.com. That's right, abortionstrategies.com. The scheduled date to launch coincides with the infamous anniversary of Roe versus Wade, January 22nd in the year of our Lord, 2023. Now, on the website... Brothers and sisters, you're going to find a link to purchase the book, access a video study course taught by pastors and leaders of the abolitionist movement. These men of God each take a chapter to highlight the biblical truths, historical examples, and scriptural principles that reflect God's view of abortion and what must be done to establish his justice and cleanse our polluted and defiled land of blood guiltiness. There will also be made available an audio version of the book, plus a study guide that could be used in churches, small group settings, and amongst homeschool families. Now, to whet your appetite... I'm going to conclude this episode with a short summary of each chapter. I'm going to begin with the introduction. 
And the passage of scripture I start the book with is Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Now, in the introduction, I demonstrate how both groups, pro-choice and pro-life, fall into this same dilemma. There's a way that seems right, but it ends in death. When it comes to the two groups, it's just in various degrees. Both groups use similar language and tactics to appeal to the woman to either choose death or life for their children. Now, we know God addressed that in his word in Deuteronomy. He says, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Now, here's God's will, choose life that you and your children may live. Well, both groups seem to want to have that same godlike power to give the choice to women to either choose life or to choose death. Uh, of course, the pro-choice groups, their appeal to women is abortion is good for you. Uh, it liberates you from the responsibility of raising children by allowing abortion on demand till the moment of birth. Or in some cases, like in California, they're floating the idea of the baby being born and after a month still having the option to murder the child. That's how insane uh, some in our nation have become. Well, the pro-life group also appeals to women. And their appeal is, hey, abortion is bad for you. And it hurts. You know, the better choice, lady, is to choose life. The problem, however, is both groups fail to view abortion from a biblical perspective. It is a crime. God calls it murder, and it must be penalized by law. And sadly, in both groups, the child in the womb, the one that's being led to slaughter, that child is not the primary concern. In both groups, the woman is the concern. And, and it's all about the welfare of the woman. Uh, for the pro-choicers, the plight of the child is not even considered. For the pro-life movement, the plight of the child in most cases is secondary. And as a result, um, the pro-life movement kind of came up with this sec second victim mentality where they actually expanded the victimhood status when it comes to abortion. Women who choose to hire an assassin to murder their baby must, under the pro-life narrative, be given victimhood status. In some extreme cases, I've even seen them claim the abortionists themselves are to be considered victims. Well, that doesn't hold water biblically. The only victim that God recognizes when a woman in her right mind chooses to hire an assassin to murder her baby, that victim 
is the child, the pre-born child. And that is what constitutes the true victim of abortion. Now, if women and here, well, and here's the thing we, we do have to understand. Um, I can say that in all my years, about 40 years being at death camps all across America, yes, there were, were a few very rare mother victim abortions. I did see some women dragged into the clinic against their will. And in all cases, I crossed that line, went on the property, called the police. Um, But for the most part, the majority of the women, 99.9% know exactly what they're doing. Either they'll be silent when we cry out to them the gospel and try to give them help to choose life, or they are just blatant up in your face, cursing you, incredible vulgarity and vileness and blasphemy. And so, and here's the other issue, which is concerns their eternal soul. If the pro-life movement um, teaches women that they are victims of abortion, um, what happens to the gospel of Jesus Christ when it comes to the liberation of their souls? Because if they're just victims and not sinners and criminals who partake in this bloody idolatry, how can the gospel liberate them? And I think we just need to understand, brothers and sisters, that abortion is a sin that needs to be repented of and a crime that needs to be penalized. The truth is God does not save pretend victims. He saves sinners. And so the pro-life movement does an incredible disservice to the souls of these women when they claim they are victims rather than sinners and criminals involved in a brutal act of murder against their preborn child. Well, that's the introduction. Chapter one, foundations. This uh, first chapter delves into the importance of foundations. Well, there's only one firm foundation that stands the test of time and eternity, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. The Apostle Paul, who stated that truth, also cautioned us to be careful how we build upon the solid rock. And here again is where the pro-life movement fails. Uh, Much of the pro-life movement has ignored uh, these biblical truths and thus convinced the church to build our defense of the pre-born on sinking sand strategies. Much of the pro-life movement, um, the strategies literally come from people who know not God nor obey the gospel of of Jesus Christ. And so what they've ended up doing, they exchange God's truth for their political strategies. And that has been a disaster for over 50 years Here's the thing, brothers and sisters, when it comes to the defense of the preborn, we cannot keep silent the name of Jesus. We cannot dilute his truth nor ignore his commandments and expect to prevail against the one 
who has come to kill, steal, and to destroy. Well, that leads to chapter two. It's called God's Order. One of my favorite passages of scripture, Micah 6, 8. God's word declares he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? First thing, do justly. Secondarily, love mercy. Thirdly, and walk humbly with your God. Now, in God's economy, his divine order is critically important with God dealing with the affairs of men and of nations. His order is always justice first. And now remember, this is one of the reasons why Christ came to the earth to lead justice to victory. Now, after justice has been established, then we are to love mercy. And by the way, putting justice first, then mercy, that actually proves mankind is walking humbly with our God. Now, here's the problem. The church, led by the pro-life movement, uh, in their attempts to defend the life of the pre-born, we end up leading with what should follow. We are leading with mercy, and we're doing it at the expense of justice. We are out of order, and that must be repented of by establishing justice first so that mercy can be extended. Uh, even in the book of Psalms, the great you know, Psalm 23 talks about surely goodness and mercy shall follow me and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And if you're like most Christians, you kind of wish that goodness and mercy was leading us, but it doesn't. It follows. And so what God demands first is justice. And then once that is established, mercy can be extended. Chapter 3, the governments of God. The essence of this chapter reveals that there are four primary governments that God established for his glory and our benefit. They are family, church, and civil government when properly enforced leads to the importance of self-government, which our founding fathers believed was and will remain always the key to liberty. I point out of all four governments, the government most responsible to end the Holocaust is civil government. So it's therefore incumbent upon the church to reg regain her prophetic voice to provide the moral conscience of the state to do their duty to protect life and stop the shedding of innocent blood. God ordained the state with a sword. It is a ministry of justice. They must punish the evildoer as God has defined evil and protect those who are good in God's sight. If they don't do that, they are carrying the sword in vain. And instead of being God's deacon and minister, they become a dupe of the devil 
where they are protecting murderers who kill the preborn and then will punish those who try to save their life, which is a good deed in the sight of God. And so that is chapter three, the governments of God. Onwards to chapter four, separation of church and state. I point out in this chapter that the term separation of church and state is not found in any of our founding documents. You can't find it in the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, or the Bill of Rights. The doctrine of the separation of church and state, however, is found in the Bible. There is a legitimate separation of church and state that man needs to respect in practice. But with this one major caveat, there is no separation between the governments of men and the supreme authority of Almighty God. So critically important. This chapter also discusses the fallacy that Christians should not legislate biblical morality. I'm I'm sure you've heard that through the years. The truth is, every law and public policy is based upon someone's definition of morality. It is someone's definition of good and evil that undergirds the laws of the land. Each one of those laws implies some things should be protected and other things should be penalized. In the case of abortion, the murderers are protected and those who interpose to save their lives are punished. We must remember this. Morality is the basis for law. And religion is the basis for morality. The issue is which is the correct religion, God or man, biblical or humanistic, which one produces a solid moral basis for just laws to govern society. We need to choose well in that regard, brothers and sisters. Well, on to chapter five. Upon this rock, this chapter explores the place and setting where Christ reveals who he truly is and the purpose of his church in the world. You can find that in Matthew 16, 13 through 18. And this is where Peter makes the great confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, the location where this confession takes place is highly significant. I mean, in the realms of real estate, location, location, location is of primary importance. In this case, the place was Caesarea Philippi. Now, this city was known for its pagan thought, demonic activity, and gross idolatry. So it's not a coincidence that Jesus chose that location where he was literally, listen, he was literally standing on a rock and underneath that rock is where pagans were practicing their idolatry and it's at that very place, (laughs) excuse me, that he reveals that he is the Messiah 
and that he is going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And this is both true Old Testament and New Testament. New Testament. Because we got to keep in mind the place where children were sacrificed in the Old Testament was called Gehenna. This is another term for hell. So literally, hell on earth is where child sacrifice and the shedding of innocent blood is practice. And it's on that rock that Almighty God declares, I am the Messiah, I'm establishing the church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And it was that revelation, actually, that birthed um, the church at Planned Parenthood movement. And so God uh, definitely used that message uh, to bring the church to the gates of hell, trusting they will not prevail in Jesus' name. Well, on the jap- chapter 6, Roe versus Wade. Now, keep in mind, I, I had written this before the Dobbs decision, where the Supreme Court kicked abortion back to the states. But it's still a good chapter to study because it does reveal the sordid history of the Republican Party establishing Roe and maintaining it for close to 50 years. And so that's chapter six. It's on Roe versus Wade, how the justices had these special judicial glasses that they could see in the penumbra of the Constitution, this so-called right uh, to murder babies. Uh, It's absolutely insane because the Constitution actually says uh, no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So that is chapter 6, Roe versus Wade. Chapter 7, incrementalism. And here I utilize the Exodus where God prepares Israel uh, to come out of the bondage of slavery from Egypt and to uh, get established in the promised land. And, and through this chapter, I show the incrementalism that God will not approve of, he will not bless, uh, and that is an incrementalism that violates the commandment of God. And you see that with Moses and Pharaoh, where you know Moses declares to Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. And you know the story, uh, you know, he, he, he doubled down on pride and stupidity and, you know, the 10 plagues. And as the plagues are hammering e- Egypt, you know, Pharaoh's reaching across the aisle. He's trying to make deals um, with Moses. And if Moses caves at any point, the Exodus is just kind of a little blip in history. Uh, but it finally comes down to not one hoof is going to be left behind. He told Pharaoh, this is God's commandment. I will not deviate. Uh, I will not accept anything less than complete obedience to God's command. And so, obviously, Moses did not take the incremental approach like the pro-life movement. You know, thou shall not murder is not for sale. It's non-negotiable. God didn't say thou shall not murder unless the Supreme Court or the federal government rules otherwise. This is the commandment of Almighty God. It's established in the heavens and it will never change. 
And so this is where the church of Jesus Christ must stand. We cannot deviate. But then I show through the Exodus how they were coming into the land where God says, I'm not going to give you the whole land at once. Uh, You can't handle it. So I'm going to take you in little by little to get you established in the land. But here's the thing. It wasn't God's people planning incrementalism. No, the the criteria for God's people was to stand on God's unchanging truth, to obey his commandment, and then God incrementally brings the victory. An important distinction, brothers and sisters. We go on from there, chapter 8, the doctrine of interposition. And this chapter teaches the three elements that constitute the necessity of interposition. A, there's an oppressor. B, there's a victim. And C, there is the one who stands in the gap to rebuke the oppressor and save the life of the victim. And there are a lot of biblical and historical examples of this doctrine throughout redemptive history that is in this chapter. Well, on the chapter 9, the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. Special shout out to Pastor Matt Chuella and his his groundbreaking book, The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrate. Well, here's this doctrine in essence. It declares when a superior civil authority, such as our federal government, makes unjust, immoral, unconstitutional, and wicked decrees, it is the duty of the lesser magistrate such as the governor of a state or a sheriff in a county, to refuse to obey the unlawful order to preserve the life, liberty, and property of those under their immediate jurisdiction. Now, brothers and sisters, some of you may know I served with the 101st Airborne in the United States Army, and I can tell you they hammered us day in and day out to obey all lawful orders, even to the point of uh, harm, uh, death. You are to obey lawful orders. But at the same token, they also hammered us not to obey unlawful or unjust orders. And why is that? It's called war crimes. And so that is like ingrained. It's ingrained in our military And it's ingrained in American jurisprudence. Um, The problem is we have not implemented it in quite some time. And it needs to be done. Because the sword of civil government, if it upholds and defends and protects that which God considers an abomination, it must of necessity penalize the righteous and those who do good in God's sight. And this is where the lesser magistrate has to stand in the gap and say no uh, to a superior authority who threatens the life, liberty, and property of its citizens. So on the chapter 10, short-term and long-term strategies to abolish abortion. The short-term strategy is the church going to the gates of hell to minister the gospel of the kingdom and employ the weapons of our warfare that are not carnal, but are mighty through God 
to the pulling down of strongholds. It is important for the church to go to these death camps to provide a way of escape uh, from these deceived parents that are doing the unspeakable to their children. We have to recognize where sin has led these people. Um, And we know that once they go through it, all hell and darkness is going to consume their lives. And so it's critical. The church is there preaching the law, preaching the gospel, and providing helps that these women uh, can choose life instead of death. Because the problem with America is we think we can choose death and still be blessed. And that is delusional, absolutely delusional. We cannot murder our own babies and expect our lives to be enhanced by that. And so critically important, the church minister at the gates of hell, knowing they won't prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. And then the long-term strategy is the church developing a mission to the magistrate. It is so critically important, brothers and sisters, that you know your chief of police, your sheriff, you know, your congressman, your senator uh, in your state, your lieutenant governor, your governor. Um, we, We have to reach out to them. We have to disciple and mentor them in their duty to not carry the sword in vain. They have to establish justice on the behalf of the preborn because that is their calling by Almighty God. There's three reasons why God established civil government. A, to restrain evil. Two, protect life. And three, stop the shedding of innocent blood. Why? Because man is made in the image of God. And there are a lot of helps, a lot of materials that the church can employ to go to our magistrates and make sure they exercise that sword in justice and protect those who are good in God's sight. This leads to chapter 11, openings that must be shut. Now, this chapter deals with the three exception clauses that open the door to abortion on demand. They are rape, incest, and the life of the mother. I go through the timeline on how the left came up with the worst case scenarios to make what was previously unthinkable mainstream and how they always try to take the high moral ground by projecting their evil upon us to justify their wicked agendas. I seek to answer these exceptions biblically so the church will not be manipulated emotionally to being deceived with these openings that must be shut. Well, on to chapter 12. Biblical distinctions between sin and crime. Not all sin is crime. This chapter argues that abortion is not only a sin that needs to be repented of, but a crime to be penalized by the state. End abortion now. You know, Pastor Jeff and the Apologia gang, uh, they stated The role of the church is mercy. The role of the state is justice. Religious forgiveness must not be confused with civil judgment. People can be forgiven of sins and stand trials for crimes. And that's the argument. 
that abortion is not just a sin, um, and it would be it would constitute a sin because it violates God's law. Thou shalt not murder. But again, murder uh, goes beyond the sin realm into the realm of criminality. And we need to understand the difference, brothers and sisters. So my last chapter, five elements of an abolition bill. So to achieve equal protection and justice under the law for the preborn, a clean abolitionist bill must have five crucial elements to it. Here they are. Number one, man is made in the image of God. Each bill has to reflect that truth. Life is sacred. Therefore, the state is duty-bound to protect human life from conception to natural death. Number two, abortion is a crime of murder, and that must be reflected in the homicide code of each state. Number three, there must be penalties involved for all who are involved in the murder of the preborn, and that would include the mother who is most culpable in the majority of cases. Number four, interposition by the lesser magistrate against any superior authority that demands the murder of the preborn. Um, those lesser magistrates have to stand in the gap and they must ignore or defy that superior authority. And lastly, once abortion is made illegal and it's in the homicide code, the state that passes a bill of abolition in the bill itself will declare we will, we will not answer to any court. Because here's the truth, brothers and sisters. When the courts ignore the Constitution, it is the duty of the states and we the people to ignore the courts. Well, that's all 13 chapters. That's some highlights of it. Uh, there are some more helps at the end of the book. Um, there's a, a open letter to pastors, to magistrates, to the police. Um, there, there's all kinds of other helps, appendixes at the end of the book. So brothers and sisters, I do pray you uh, go to abortionstrategies.com, that you check it out, that you sign up uh, for the course, and that you pass it on in your sphere of influence. Well, until next time, this is Kingdom Moments with Rusty Thomas. You keep pressing on to that high calling prize in Jesus' name. God bless you.